How many have ever thought about a fountain of youth before? As I, as I get a little older, you know, you, you sometimes look for that place where you can take a dip or uh, something you can drink or a supplement that you can ingest that'll help bring youthfulness and help bring zeal. And that, that search for eternal youth and, and that fountain of youth has been a frequent fixture of various myths and legends from around the world, probably from the beginning of time. Well, one of the earliest accounts of such a place comes from 5th century B.C., when the Greek historian Herodotus wrote of a fountain in the land of the Macrobians, which gave the people of the region exceptional vigor and long lifespans. In the 3rd century, Alexander the Great was said to have searched for a fountain of youth, allegedly crossing a mythical land covered in eternal night called the Land of Darkness, just trying to find it. During the Age of Exploration, when European global exploration took off in the 15th century A.D., Interest in such a mythical fountain of youth had not waned. The uh, new world of the Americas began to be seen as a potential location for that fountain of eternal youth. The Caribbean in particular was considered a prime candidate. Still doesn't seem like a bad place to go visit for youthfulness. Anyway, as many islanders spoke of a lost land of wealth and prosperity known as Bimini, which became entwined with the legend of a fountain of youth. The Fountain of Youth was a hot topic in those days, and the Spanish historian Lopez de Gamara wrote of an Indian accounts of a magical river, waterfalls, and a spring that could reverse aging and could be found in the lands north of Cuba and Haiti. He says this, it was quoted, Among the islands of the north side of Hispaniola, about 325 leagues distant, as is said to be those who have searched for it, is a continual spring of flowing water of such marvelous virtue that the water there being drunk, perhaps some diet also, make old men young and vigorous again. How many would like that a little bit? Doesn't sound too bad. And yet when we look at the Gospels, Jesus spoke of this fountain of life. Jesus spoke of eternal life. Jesus spoke of something that he possessed, something he carried that would cause people to be vigorous, that caused people to overflow with joy. He spoke in certain times about this very living waters that was bubbling up in him and could bubble up in believers that could bring just a renewed zeal, a renewed passion, a renewed hope. And uh, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that this morning, just this idea of this river of life, what, what, what flows from Jesus, what causes life in Jesus to be invigorating and life-changing. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll set that up in a minute here. There's a story, if you have your Bible, you can open with me to John chapter 4, and there's a story that Jesus told about this invigorating, life-giving water. And he was on a journey with his buddies. He'd been ministering and, and just uh, lots going on. And they were hungry. And Jesus decided to sit down at this well and send the rest of them into town to get food. And in John chapter 4, verse 5, this is how it goes. He came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it you, you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the drink of God and who, is it, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as, as well as his sons and his livestock? Well, this is what Jesus answered. He said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor uh, come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and have him come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, is that, is that you really spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when we will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is the Jews. And the hour is coming is, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Say that with me, spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this deal about living water and this, this encounter with a woman at a well. And, and, and you know, why did Jesus take that time, that personal time to be with her and, and explain something to her that her heart was longing for? What is it about Jesus and these, these two ingredients, this worship in spirit and in truth, that can be life-changing, that can initiate and to help maintain a flow of life that, that most of us are looking for, that, that eternal life. He said it would spring up into eternal life. What is it about those two things that Jesus ministered to that's relevant for us today? Well, let's look at a couple things we can learn. And maybe Jesus showing up at your well this morning, no matter where you are, you might be in the same circumstance where you've tried a bunch of different things, but that well still seems dry, that, that when you go to take a dip, it just doesn't seem replenishing. We're going to look at these ingredients, hopefully, from a fresh perspective this morning and talk about an aspect of Christianity that becomes to us a well, that becomes to us refreshing, that becomes to us strength. What can we learn about Jesus from the passage? First, he cared about people more than cultural barriers. So Jesus wasn't afraid to cross a cultural barrier to get to a person who has need and has a vacuum in her life. She even said herself, Jews, we, we really have no dealings with Samaritans. How come you're asking me to give you a drink and you're going to put your Jewish lips on my Samaritan cup? There's something wrong with that picture. It shouldn't be that way. Jesus loves beyond barriers. He, he loves beyond cultural uh, norms. Number two, he could see the core of what this woman really needed. The void left from going from man to man, from relationship to relationship, and not being fulfilled. So he's offering her something different. He's offering her something more. He's offering her his, his heart himself. He spoke to her of emptiness, her emptiness, and said that he could impart something that would truly fill the void in her heart, and it would be living water, and it would be springing up, and it would be replenishing. He mentioned two ingredients, spirit and truth, and those are the two ingredients that still transform you and me. 
He said, the water that I shall give him will become in him or in her fountains of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus made this promise a little later in John 17. He said, and this is eternal life. Could you read this with me? And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom have you sent. What's eternal life in that passage? What, what's eternal life? What leads to eternal life? Knowing. Say knowing with me. Knowing. What's eternal life? Knowing. Knowing. Having relationship. Having relationship with him. That's the key to eternal life. Spirit, truth, knowing God, and having relationship with him. And it, what, what happened is, I think it was in February, beginning of February, I was at our AFCM conference. I'm a regional director for the Southwest. We gather annually in Melbourne, Florida with the leaders and we started mapping out vision and direction for AOCM. And last year, they asked me to speak on relational uh, leadership, relational ministry. And, you know, there's administrative things that are necessary, structure so important in building the kingdom that we have good structure. But there's also the relationships behind the structure. And they asked me to present there. And after that, one of the directors who runs the Bible school said, hey, would you put together six sessions on uh, relational ministry for us. And that's been, you know, eight months, and I haven't made a whole lot of progress because other things going on. And so when I was in Minnesota in June, they asked me to do it again, and I'd been praying about it, and I thought, well, it would be something good for our church as well. So this week and the next six weeks, we're going to talk about all different aspects of relationship and relational ministry and and. Hopefully, it's going to be a good study for me as far as relational healthiness, because that is the side of Christianity. You can, you can study the Bible from different aspects. You can look at it historically. You can look at Bible prophecy. Many of us study it for the truths and principles that we can stand on, the promises that if we believe these, it'll change our life, it'll help our finances, it'll, it'll help our health. We, we can study it for the personal promises. Or we can read it as a love story, and we can say, God, in this book, these 66 books, how, how did you reveal yourself to man? And in that revelation of how you revealed yourself to us, and how you love us, and us understanding that relationship, how you love us, how does that impact our life, my life, and what's it mean for the other relationships around me? So when you say there's a lifestyle that leads to a flow of living water, you said, you described this thing about spirit and truth, that there's a lifestyle involved with spirit and truth where these two ingredients are increasing in my life and I'm, I'm connected to spirit and truth, that it could really produce in me life-changing things, invigorating things, youthful things, new things, that is it really true, Jesus, that if I cultivate these ingredients, spirit and truth, if I, if I cultivate what it means to connect relationally with you first and with other people, that could be an ongoing wellspring that would keep me invigorated and rejuvenated and encouraged and strengthened and new things happen into my life. And I believe the answer to that is yes. I believe that when we discover and start walking in greater dimensions of spirit and truth and deeper relationships and godly relationships, it leads to an abundance in life that God has for us. Anybody with me today? And so relationships are challenging. I know a lot of Christians, it's, I've heard it quoted before, I love Christianity, it's great. I love ministry, it's great. It's just the people. And you can't have it without the people. You can't because it starts with God. He is love. 
And so we're going to look at that, how it starts with God and how he relates even in the Trinity. And then based on that, how he relates to man. And then in that, hopefully, how we can learn to relate to one another and grow in relationships. And I know when relationships are right and relationships are good and relationships are wholesome and relationships are healthy. When people have those ingredients and, and a healthy mix of good friends and good support and they're being a mentor and a friend to other people, that there is a life that comes. There's a wellspring that comes. It's strengthening. It's fulfilling. It's encouraging. It's life-giving. I want that for our church. Anybody with me this morning? So let's just look at a few things. This is concerning God first. See, how God revealed himself, he revealed himself in the, as the Trinity, and because God is love, there need to be an object to that love. You can't love without an object to love. And so God reveals himself, manifests himself in the Trinity from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 1, you see that the Holy Spirit was there. And this passage said, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of this person and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is speaking of Jesus. From the very beginning, the father who created was there with the son who was designing. The two working together helped form the whole world. And because God is love, he can't reveal himself as love unless he's got an object to love and it started with Jesus from the foundation of the world. Scripture says that Jesus came forth from the Father. He wasn't created. Uh, you know, well, let's hit this passage. For the law was given through Moses, but what grace and truth, say that with me, grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who, who what? He's in the bosom of the Father. In other words, Jesus, he came forth. He said in the Gospels, I came forth from the Father. I came out of the Father. I, me and the Father are one. I, I am his heart. I'm him manifested to you. And so Jesus and the Father had a relationship from the beginning of time as God manifested himself through the Son. And, and he manifests love towards the Son. There had to be an object of his love. And it began as the Father began to show and demonstrate who he was by how he loved his Son. And so because of that, there's different passages that give us revelation of it. In the Gospels, John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 5.20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He's doing. In fact, the Father will show Him how to do even greater works in healing this man. I, I love that passage because Jesus is doing miracles and He's almost uh, communicating, it's my Father who's shown me how to do these things. It's my father that reveals this blind man. He, he wants his sight. Now, Jesus, manifest your power and heal him. It sounds like a working together, a cooperation. And the father loves the son. And so it begins with him. And, and for you and me to walk in those kind of relationships, I, I, when, I, when I read these passages, it puts a little kind of envy in me. You can walk that close. The father and the son walk so close. And then the Holy Spirit, Jesus said the Holy Spirit, he honors the father. He honors the son. There's an honor in heaven. There's a love, a respect, a mutuality of just uh, uh, working together, a communion that's, that's represented and lived out in the Trinity. And when I see that, I say, God, that's what you want, first of all, for me and you. So in the book of Genesis, Scripture said God came down in the cool of the day and he walked with Adam and Eve. We were made for relationship. We we're made for connection. 
We're made for intimate fellowship with God. And some of that is just, again, not letting relationships get stale and bored and just, you know, some of you have been in church for a long time singing similar songs and going through motions. And what C.S. Lewis said is true about relationships, being able to fall in love again and again and again with the same person. And that's part of the same thing with God. Being able to look at him a fresh way and keep the love relationship cultivating, that's the wellspring of life. Thursday night, Jan and I went to Cambria and did a wedding, six in the evening. It was a friend of a friend and a young couple. He's on leave. He's in the army, and he's going into Afghanistan back in two weeks. And so this couple had been dating, and they were planning a big wedding in the future, and they decided to just to do it quick, just between them. And so they asked us to do the wedding, and it was really a neat evening. And we did it and made some new friends there. And um, then they gave me an honorarium. And so I said, come on, Jen, let's go to dinner. Where do you want to go to dinner in Cambria? And she picked the sow's ear. And so good place, great food. We split a meal because I'm in this weight loss challenge. Anyway, so, but we're sitting there in just a really cool place. And there is a look in my wife's eye. She still has this little kind of a, get emotional about it. 36 years we've been married. And so there's just still this little twinkle and a smile in her face. Man, it just grabs me again and renews in me just a love for her. And uh, just I think about her, her just support and her goodness and just her faithfulness to an honorary guy like me, a stubborn guy that can be tough to live with and, and just how faithful she has been. And it renews in me just a love for her and a, and a genuine want to connect with her. It is a wellspring. It's, it's relationship causes that wellspring of life to flow. And how many believe Jesus wants that with you and me? He has it with the Father and he wants us to discover again and again his love for us and his care for us. I've been reading the healing stories again in the Gospels and the intricacies, how he called out people. He knew them by name. He, he had a love for people, and it just blows me away about the care that God has for you and me. This is another passage where he, he promises intimacy. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. That screams relationship to me. He didn't say, I'm going to drop another tablet of stone with some more laws on you when you're together. You guys praying, I'm going to drop a scroll down. It's going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. No, he said, I'm going to have a relationship with you. I'm, I want to know you relationally. I want you to know my, my heart. I want you to know how I see and think about people. I want to reveal to you just things I've hidden and allow you to discover them. I want you to see sunsets with fresh eyes. I want you to discover the growth of spring for, for just a, a new experience again. And how he does that and keeps us because of his love for us is amazing to me. It's the relational side of ministry. And he wants you and me to have a living relationship with him, and we can. In the midst of a chaotic world that the culture is going so sideways, I hope in the next few weeks we discover how to cultivate and deepen a personal relationship with him and a personal relationship with each other. Amen? Amen. I just got a couple things. What, what is this deal about relational Christianity? Well, I'd say relational Christianity is an art and a science. And it, it, it's the art of how do I understand how God wants me to relate to him and then living that out and how I relate to other people. 
Again, people read their Bibles and do their devotionals and get personally fed. And there's lots of Christians on the Central Coast that call themselves Christians that are not in fellowship with other believers because they, they just have this mindset that I don't want to be bothered. I just, I'm going to love God on my own. I'm going to listen to my own worship. And man, I'm reading this really good book and it's feeding me. And, and they're, they're cultivating this relationship with God, but relationally, they're missing things with the broader body of Christ. They're missing the connections of, that are so vital for our growth, so vital for this wellspring of life to continually feed and nurture us. And sometimes, well, let, let me just frame some of these things. What, what really is relational Christianity? Oh. This, there's a couple articles that I sought on this, and one of them's adapted from Adrian Warnock and some other guys from Pathios, and it, it, it just describes what it really means to live in relationship with the church and also with the Lord. Relational Christianity is simply biblical Christianity where we follow the great commands to really love God and to love each other and sometimes sacrificially. Can you say sacrificially? Relational Christianity is based on an exclusive relationship with the one who saved us and loved us, but it leads to an inclusive love for everyone. Relational Christianity is about being brothers in arms, together on a mission, not a social club meeting exclusively just for the impartation of facts and inspiration. So relational Christianity means I've got friends I'm doing life with. I have friends that are speaking into my life, and I get to encourage them, and they're encouraging me. Relational Christianity is more than just rules and, and systems and processes and programs. Relational Christianity is heart-to-heart stuff. Relational Christianity builds community where grace is lived out and embodied, not merely studied as a doctrine. So when you're in relational Christianity, you get to exercise grace towards one another. You get to experience grace from one another. Relational Christianity is not friendships based on common interest, but fellowship with a common Lord causing fellowship with each other. Relational Christianity treats people, saved or unsaved, as valuable and made in the image of God. They're not just prospects or targets for conversion. Sometimes I think in our faith we talk about, well, I'm, hey, I made this new person and I'm telling them about this and that. I'm sharing my testimony. And, and those are all good things. But when we just treat people as targets, or we just treat people like our multi-level marketing thing, that they're just going to be one more in my downline. That, that's not how it's supposed to be. Jesus loved people. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked a significant question, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he started listing everything he did. You know what Scripture says? Scripture says first, Jesus looked upon him and he loved him. He loved him with his baggage. He loved him, this guy trying to buy his way in, the guy trying to work the system, all those things that were in his heart. Scripture says he just looked at him and he loved him. He valued him for who he is. He valued him because he's been made in the image of God. And I found out just in, in my walk and with neighbors and other people, when you can value people for just and honor them for who they are and the gift mix that's in them, even though it's not sanctified yet, even though there's lots of rough edges, but to be able to appreciate and love people because, you know, God, God loves them. To, just to love them that way. There's, there's something that grows. There's attraction. There's a depthness that grows. And we have that relationship developing with a few neighbors. 
where now they ask questions, and now they're open, and now there's trust, and now there's a respect that begins to grow because trust and respect are pillars, foundational in, in just relationships. Amen? Are you doing all right? Relational Christianity treats people saved or unsaved as valuable. Number seven, relational Christianity doesn't exist if before service, everyone sits in silence reverence, are passive during service, and after, they all rush to go straight home. No matter how good your church service, relational Christianity can never happen in one or two hours of passivity on a Sunday with nothing else. So relational Christianity has to be pursued. It has to be sought after. Relational Christianity is inspiring those who rarely go out of their way to engage people to give it a try again, to connect, to risk again, to be vulnerable, to be friendly, and to find some friends. Relational Christianity uses the language of family, not business. We, we use the term father and son and beloved and brother or sister. We don't, we don't use the term, there's the boss and here's the worker. In relational Christianity, we have community. We prefer the term follow me rather than submit and obey me. Relational Christianity values people over rules and processes. It leads to trust and not just contracts. It leads to willing volunteers and not people being manipulated by demanding leadership. And organic structures grow through relationships. Relational Christianity probably doesn't exist in your church if people are not eating meals with each other. Jesus ate a lot of meals with people. Relational Christianity recognizes that although creeds and statements of faith are valuable, that godly and gifted people ensure church strength and purity. Just because we have a great doctrinal statement and great core values does not mean that the health and the life of the church is going to stay on course to please God. It's not those rules are necessary, structures necessary, but what makes us alive and vibrant church is relationships first with God uh, vertically and then horizontally loving relationships with each other. Amen? Relational Christianity means that you have real friends at church, even if you're one of the pastors. It values the gifts and strengths of individuals behind or beyond status and titles. And I've met several lonely pastors. They're at the top. They can't be open if people really knew and saw and heard what really goes on. Maybe they wouldn't have the respect. I'm just grateful that I have friends here that I can be open with and real with and honest with. Relational Christianity means that pastors don't feel they're alone at the top of the pyramid, but they have people that can have honest friends with. Relational Christianity means that you have church friends. You could ring at 2 a.m. in an emergency, and they'd take your call, and they'd get up. Relational Christianity in an ideal local church reflects the makeup of the local population in terms of race and gender and socioeconomic status as God loves everyone. Something is seriously wrong with your church if it contains only people you naturally have chosen to be with. Relational Christianity does not see the other churches in your city as rivals, but as allies fighting the same army against the same enemy. Relational Christianity would never dare to hate any part of the church, the bride of which our Lord Jesus died to save and is betrothed to. Relational Christianity says this, if a member of your church will clearly be better served by a different church than you, we would encourage them to go in peace and to be fed and strengthened. Relational Christianity is really simply about loving God first and therefore loving your neighbor who is made in God's image. Amen? How many want to pursue relational Christianity at deeper levels? Anybody with me? Well, just in wrapping this thing up, I've, I've also watched this pendulum swing the other way because I've met many, many people who say this, hey, you know, it's about relationship and not religion. How many have ever said that? 
But, but what we got to understand, too, that there's something in the term religion that's important as well. Because the pendulum can swing, and I've met people say, dude, no, I don't go to church, man. I fellowship with God on a glassy morning, and my bros are out there. And, and, and th- this mindset that it's just kind of like, I'm going to do God my way. And not, you know, every relationship has rules. Every relationship has boundaries of honor. And so when we say we have a relationship with God, it's, it's understanding how he wants to be loved. And some of us, because of legalism and all that, have pushed so far away from what we'd consider religion that it's just kind of a cut and paste and doing God my way. And, and having relationships with my wife means that I, I understand her and I know how she wants to be loved and what makes her mad and what makes her upset and things when I just need to hold my tongue and time when it needs to speak and cultivate love. The same thing happens with God. See, Scripture talks about pure and undefiled religion is to look after widows and orphans in their time of need and keep yourself unstained from the world. Scripture uses the word religion. And, and this is what, how religion is defined. It comes from the word religare, which means to bind or to tie together. The word of the root is lig, L-I-G, from which we get our ter- term ligament and ligature. Now that is a theological concept worth considering. Religion is that by which everything is held together. And so some of us, the pendulum swings and we say it's all about relig- relationship and, you know, we get this attitude about religion, and they're religious, and that person's religious, and that church is religious, because we're kind of highlighting this freedom we have in Christ. I just say, be careful with that, because religion really means the concepts, the philosophies, the scripture that holds us together, and God wants us to be together. And the independence in our culture, and the, the respect for entrepreneurialism, and individuality in our culture has almost produced Christians that say, have relationship with God, but I don't want relationship with other people. I'm doing my own thing. I, I don't want to be a sheep. I don't want to have to be connected. I don't want to have the responsibilities. I don't want the obligations. I love Jesus, but I'm kind of doing it my way with him. And, and when I look at Scripture, this togetherness means that I have obligations. This togetherness means that I, I have times of sacrifice. This togetherness means that I have to intentionally, intentionally deal with people that maybe I wouldn't pick to deal with, forgive people that have wronged me. This intentionality of having a relationship with God and living in relationship with God means that I I have to oblige myself. There's times I have to commit myself to other people and to the body of Christ if I'm going to do life his way and feel that wellspring of living water and love keep flowing. Is that all right this morning? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, just in conclusion, maybe some of you have heard Rosario Butterfield speak, and she's a former tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. And like any lifestyle or any kind of lifestyle where it takes people away from the Lord, she was living as an avowed lesbian in the lesbian lifestyle and as an atheist. She says it this way. I considered myself an atheist, having rejected my Catholic childhood and what I perceived to be the superstitions and illogic of the historical Christian faith. I found Christians to be difficult and sour and fearful and intellectually unengaged people. In addition, since the age of 28, I had lived in a monogamous lesbian relationships and politically supported the LGBT causes. 
I co-authored Syracuse University's first successful domestic partnership policy while working there as a professor of English and women's studies. And I was terrified to lay it on any level with a worldview that called me, my life, my community, my scholarly interest, and my relationship sin. Add to this that I was working on a book exposing the religious right from a lesbian feminist point of view. I approached the Bible with an agenda to tear it down because I firmly believed that it was threatening, dangerous, and irrational. When I came to Christ, I experienced what 19th century Scottish theologian Tom Calmer's called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power a new affection. And at that time of my conversion, my lesbian identity and the feelings did not vanish. But as my union with Christ grew, the sanctification that at birth put a wedge between my old self and my new one. In time, this contradiction exploded, and I was able to claim identity in Christ alone. And this is what changed me. Pastor Ken Smith, he was my neighbor and he modeled to me organic Christian hospitality and life-sustaining action of neighboring. And so when you read her testimony in fullness, she said it was this, this couple next door. And my life began to unravel, and I knew theologically where they were coming from, and that part of her that disdained their position started to be broken down by just love, by relationship. By valuing her and not labeling her for something she stood for, but starting to valuing her in her, in her humanity, valuing her heart, valuing and asking about what was going on. And, and through that caring, and not just trying to chalk another one up for the kingdom, but a true caring and developing relationship with her, something began to convert, something began to shift, something began to change in her heart as lifestyles that aren't blessed by God pretty soon there's all the crevices and cracks and the decay that starts to happen because any lifestyle that's contrary and in rebellion to God, sooner or later it starts like the woman at the well. I, I'm trying all these things, but it's not working. And I need living water. And next door, I hear the laughter. Next door, I see a smile. Next door, I hear that there's challenges, but how they go through challenges is different. And how they treat enemies is different. And, and how they, they relate to one another, it's just different. And I'm hungry for that. That's what I'm thirsty for. That's what I want to drink of. That's what I want part of my life. I want to drink from that well. Amen, church? Amen. First John 1, the life was manifested and we've seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life was with the Father and was manifested to us. And that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. John said, we lived with him. We had a relationship with him. I was there with him at the Last Supper. My head was on his breast. I heard his heart. I heard his prayers. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus. And these things we write to you that your joy might be full.